Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The U.S. was recently shaken by the death of LaShawn Thompson in Atlanta's Fulton County Jail. He had been moved to the psychiatric ward after being jailed on a simple battery charge. Physically healthy when he was arrested, he was left in a cell infested with bedbugs and other vermin. Michael Harper, an attorney for Thompson's family, said that he had been, quote, eaten alive with over 1,000 bites on his body. This is only the latest scandal to rock Atlanta area jails, which hold thousands of people in brutal conditions of neglect. In order to think more broadly about the context of medical and psychiatric care in prison, we're sharing an earlier KiteLine episode this week, featuring a conversation on the subject between Michelle Jones, Anastasia Schmid, and Nicole Siegel. Recorded in 2016, while Jones and Schmid were still both inside, we're happy to report that both women have since been released. Jones is one of the authors of the recent book, Who Would Believe a Prisoner? Indiana Women's Carceral Institutions, 1848 to 1920. We'll share an interview with Jones on the book in coming weeks, but for now, here she is with Anastasia. Good afternoon, this is Anna and Michelle. We're gonna discuss mental health care and health care in prison. Anastasia had a very interesting experience in the county jail when she was first arrested and throughout that time through her trial and her uh, transfer to Indiana Women's Prison. So Anna, talk a little bit about that. Okay, so um, I was not in a very good psychological state upon my arrest and subsequent incarceration. And my mental state um, was what caused them to decide to send me out for outpatient treatment at that time from the county jail. So I made routine visits to a local mental health care facility where I began being administered fairly high levels of psychotropic medications. Early on in that jail incarceration, I probably three months into it, you know, my mental status continued to deteriorate and then they deemed me mentally incompetent to stand trial. At that time, I was sent to a state psychiatric facility. So what I think a lot of people fail to realize is that when an incarcerated person is found incompetent to stand trial and they are sent to a psychiatric facility for treatment in order to make them competent, what that essentially entails is being administered extremely strong dosage psychotropic medication. Mm -hmm. So what then deemed me competent was essentially what's known as being chemically restrained. Mm -hmm. So I left that hospital and was sent back to the county jail on approximately 15 different psychotropic medications. Wow, 15 different. It's amazing. Yeah, uh, which I subsequently found out later on in life through doing um, research on the medications I was on because I essentially had been mentally incapacitated completely from these levels of drugs was that much of what I was on 
were medications that were actually contradictory to one another. Oh, wow. And would actually induce in side effects some of the very same symptoms that they were claiming I had to put me on the drugs to begin with. Uh, By the time I arrived in prison a year and nine months later, and I was indeed put on trial during that state of chemical restraint, my body had such toxic level of drug poisoning that I literally was in early to moderate stages of both liver and kidney failure. Uh, The doctor at the prison at that time had told me that if I would have stayed on that level of drugs for another 30 days, I literally would be dead. Oh my goodness. So, um, you know, I think it's a really precarious situation that anyone with any kind of um, mental issue or trauma, which in my case, trauma induced, you know, there was very little actual, um, psychiatric or mental health assessment into exactly what my problem was and what was causing the distress and the issues that I was having. And I think this is really a common thing with women because so many women in prison are trauma survivors. And it is very easy for a trauma survivor and someone who has uh, traumatic Uh, disorders to be misdiagnosed as having other mental illnesses because some of the symptoms are so similar. So what we have is a woman who's been severely traumatized, then has traumatic disorder, and that traumatic disorder is misdiagnosed. And then through the misdiagnosis, there is an extreme level of toxicity toxicity from uh, excessive amounts of medication and medications that really are not designed to actually treat trauma. You know, for the most part, there aren't really medications to treat treat trauma trauma disorders. You're not really going to alleviate any of the problems. And then what you do is you cause further problems from the drugs that they're on. And then what happens is when people come to prison, one of two things happens. Either medication is completely discontinued or cut down to a level that there is no longer positive benefit. If there ever was positive benefit to the medication, they lose that completely. Or it's a state of over-medication or being managed with the wrong medications for the actual problem. And, um, you know, I think you can speak further on what other levels of mental health care looks like in prison, but you know, the, the drug problem treating mental illness through pharmacology is completely ineffective and is rendering people in very precarious situations, both through legal proceedings and then uh, while incarcerated. Well, I, I agree with that. There actually has to be a coupling together of if you're going to use some sort of chemical, that and actual psychiatric therapy, counseling, or something of that nature, and in the county jails, that's often not present. My own personal experience, I was diagnosed with PTSD before coming to Mm -hmm. prison. I was on um, 15 milligrams of Prozac, and I also took Ativan and and Desiril. Um, When I came to prison, as common, you know, as you said, Um, the medications that you're on are removed and there's a period of assessment. Um, In the period of assessment sometimes takes several weeks. In Mm -hmm. my case, it took a few months. And in the process of that, I was going off and blowing up and having um, behavioral issues because that abrupt 
discontinuance mm -hmm. of medication doesn't work for everyone, particularly um, if you've been on the medication for as long as I was, which was almost a year. Right. Which, um, you know, in, the, in that context, people who have been on narcotic levels of medication, it, it, that's actually physically dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Stopping cold turkey. Absolutely. Um, it was very traumatic for me to mm -hmm. um, then be flooded with all that emotional energy that was being chemically managed and then all that stress and guilt and shame. And it was a really tough time to not have that, <laughs> not have mm -hmm. something helping you with your PTSD. Mm -hmm. However, um, I did eventually, they transferred me from Prozac to Paxil and I was able to take that. Um, and in the process of that, I also received what I've considered, I mean, decent mental health care. What did that entail at that time? Well, at that time, there were... And how long ago was this? 1997. Okay. In, in okay. late 90s. All right. Um, that entailed three on-staff IWP uh, psychologists and two psychiatrists. And they worked here every day. You saw them every day. Mm. Um, if you needed to, I had, uh, with Dr. Shriver, I had one-on-one -on -one counseling. I had group counseling. I had several targeted psychotherapy, uh, groups, mm -hmm. anger management, self-defeating behaviors, procrastination, um, grief and loss. Uh, you just, you, it goes on and on and the, mm -hmm. um, amazing trimester groups that they, and, oh, long-termers group. And, mm -hmm. um, one that was all about emotional behaviors. Mm -hmm. And these were targeted psychotherapy groups designed to help you deal with your stuff. So you were you were getting cognitive behavioral therapy along with the pharmacology. Absolutely, absolutely coupled together. And I think honestly, they're responsible for helping me have my positive mental health state that I have today. And how um, how is the custody then? Though the well, the custody was more focused on rehabilitation as a whole. Like everyone recognized that women were working on their stuff. Mm -hmm. And so the culture in the prison um, wrapped itself around that. Through um, privatization, um, I think we've lost a, lo a lot of that. Some of that um, bit of indifference and uh, distance with the, uh, the contractors um, because they're not integral and woven mm -hmm. into the fabric of the facility. For example, our psychologist, Dr. Shriver, would often dress up as Santa Claus mm. for Christmas <laughs> for the women um, who had their Christmas parties with their children. Mm -hmm. And he was part of the fabric of the community, of the prison community. And I think that also aided women because he treated people as people, was willing to give up this time and effort so that we could become whatever that was that we wanted to become. Mm -hmm. Better mothers, better mm -hmm. better women, better stewards. So, um, yeah, it was definitely different. Talk about your contrast at IWP. Um, so this would be early 2000s. And I think I came in at the tail end of some of what you're talking about in the beginning of the transition into prison as we know it today. For me, I think my groups were certainly more beneficial than the pharmacology. You know, fortunately, in that. my case, coming in on that much medication, which was proving to be nearly fatal, having the medications discontinued was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Ah. You know, I remember I really battled with the psychiatrist at mm. that time. Okay. You know, um, there was a lot of push and pull over whether or not I should continue to be on drugs. Now, what I knew was that the drugs weren't helping anything for me. 
very little regard for what I was trying to explain to the prison doctor at that time, what I was actually experiencing and what I actually needed. So there was this huge push and pull between the two of us um, with management Mm -hmm. and what I needed and what I didn't need. Uh, Well, having a lot of the medications removed from me, starting to come back into some semblance of cognitive awareness and trying to start to retake control of my own life, um, you know, I took the groups, I was in the different classes. Uh, I started developing kind of a baseline semblance of wellness, which at that time then decided to get back into college and go back to school. Uh, I had a lot of great professors who really backed me in going into an area of study that interested me. And for me, due to my own life, my own life experience, and certainly what was happening with me through uh, the carceral system with my mental health, I decided to study psychology. And uh, my education then really became integral to how I was going to figure out what in the heck was wrong with me, where did all this come from, and what was I going to do to fix it, and how would I find alternative methods of healing, recovery, and wellness that did not involve pharmacology. So um, it was very much self-directed healing. Right. Right. Well, I think but also the the environment has to be set up for that mm-hmm. right Absolutely. the community has to support our efforts to self heal right mm-hmm. by bringing in opportunities for you to do that and mm-hmm. i think that in my case when i had reached a point i'd been on medicated for um 6 or 7 years at the point at a point when i actually went to my doctor the doctor here and i said hey i'm ready to live my life without mm-hmm. the uh Paxil. Mm-hmm. I want to see if I can live life without my, without the Paxil. Mm-hmm. You know, he honestly listened to me, but it's very common in this in the psych in the psychology fields for people to think that you need to be medicated for mm-hmm. your whole life. Mm-hmm. But he actually listened to me, mm-hmm. and he said, "Hey, let's try it." Mm-hmm. And um, I went off the Paxil, and I never went back. Mm-hmm. But um, as a contrast to your situation, I actually felt listened to in that mm-hmm. situation, um, and. Um, and I, too, found great reward in having an opportunity to have access to a higher education mm-hmm. to challenge the, myself and challenge my mind. Actually, I got a lot of a creative creative expressions class that we mm-hmm. all took that allowed me to write out a lot of my issues and my yeah. pain, in addition to the, the groups and the programming here. But we both know that the facility went through some major changes mm-hmm. through privatization. So let me give a little context for Anna and Michelle's um, own personal experiences. Um, uh, they're in a system whose health care is administered by, uh, by a private corporation. So this is a little bit of prison privatization, not of the entire system, but just of elements within the system. We know that there are many elements that public prisons contract out to private providers, such as food service or uh, laundry and certainly mental health care. Indiana contracts its prison healthcare to Corizon Health, which is a national healthcare provider that, according to its own website, serves over 429 facilities in 25 states and has been doing so for about 35 years. Corizon as a company has had some issues over the years. 
Virginia Black over at the South Bend Tribune has written several very good pieces on some of the allegations against them. One in June, another one in September of 2016, finding that Corizon and other private providers have come under scrutiny in Indiana. Uh, and in fact, this is true nationally as well. Departments of Correction nationally are beginning to rethink using Corizon as their primary provider because of these incidences of deaths, of medical malpractice, of inadequate health care and of medical negligence that have been documented under their watch. It brings me to consider some of the situations that have happened here, you know, with women and the challenges that they've faced in providing mental health care. For example, back when we were we first arrived here, there was a large or decent sized staffed body of mental health care providers. Today, there is one mental health care provider for 580 women and one for the special needs unit. The mental right. Health and that's just insane when you think about how much the population in the it's, prison it's itself grown has grown. Absolutely. And, and then you add on that we had access to targeted psychotherapy mm -hmm. groups, you know, the anger, the domestic violence, the grief mm -hmm. and loss, the self-procrastination. These groups were key mm -hmm. to my, to my coming back from, you know, being lost and misdirected. So those things don't really exist anymore. Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. I have found, and this is uh, across the country, is that we are looking more to our lay people. We're looking mm -hmm. more to the ladies who provide Bible studies. Mm -hmm. And we're looking more to the ladies who provide, and the gentlemen who provide education. And we're mm -hmm. looking more to the people who are providing other things that are not related to mental health care mm -hmm. for Help. Well, and, you know, we've talked about this in the past before. I think, you know, on the flip side of this coin is the problems now that this lack of mental health care, what that really looks like in here. I mean, I know you worked as a lay advocate for a long time in here. Uh, I mean, talk for a minute about what it looks like when uh, a woman's behavioral issues ends up becoming criminalized from untreated or mistreated mental illness. Right. Um, definitely it's punitive. The response is often punitive. If you are someone who is medicated and, and struggling with your own rehabilitation and your issues, because we're lacking that net of support, you will find the women often find themselves in lock and then they will move from the lock to the behavioral modification unit. It, explain but, what lock is for people who don't understand. Oh, sure. Lock is your disciplinary segregation unit and you are separated from open population. You can't interact with them. You can't participate in any groups or programming and you're locked away. It's solitary confinement. And then you have the opposite of that is a behavioral modification unit. It's not open population. However, it is a managed unit and you also don't have access to education, vocation, or rehabilitative programming. So what happens to the average woman who is dealing with her mental health issues and she is acting out? A woman who is acting out will receive a CAB. A CAB is a conduct report. And those conduct reports actually assess your character. They're used to assess your character and who you are. So, so it's sort of like a, a criminal, an internal criminal charge, correct? It's a, yeah, it's internal criminal okay. charge. So you'll go the lock or disciplinary segregation or solitary confinement, do your time there. And then you'll go to a grace unit in our situation. Not every facility has a behavioral modification unit. But in this unit, there are minimal groups provided for you to deal with your stuff. So this is what's critical. If you don't deal with your stuff in that 
limited resource area. Women who are unable to fix themselves will often recycle back to law. Right, it's a revolving door. And let's just say that the reality is the average person cannot fix himself. If the average person could fix himself, none of us would be here and we wouldn't have these problems to begin with. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. And even if you can, you still need the resources, the tools, and the support system in order to do that. And so that's something that's truly missing in the equation that Mm -hmm. I felt like I received when I first got here Mm -hmm. Um, and to be incarcerated in prison with a sentence and to have trauma issues like I had and to be suffering from PTSD. um, I felt like there was a reasonable amount of support mechanisms to help me um, become a successful, viable person. And I really feel like that that is a huge hole that's missing now. Right. And off the top of your head, I do happen to recall the statistic on women in prison, the percentage of us that are trauma survivors and have trauma disorder. Do you know what that number looks like? Two reports. Uh, One states that 80 percent and another states that 90 percent of women are trauma trauma sufferers and also come to prison with at least one trauma disorder. Mm. So we're talking about a huge population of women and uh, the trauma is playing a role in Yes. The whole fact of why they've come to prison, to why they come to prison and how they do their time. Mm-hmm. Right. It plays a huge role in how they live incarcerated life and incarceration in and of itself becomes a traumatic experience. And it, and it can, particularly if you're on the cycle from lock mm-hmm. to grace to lock to grace, mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. exacerbate trauma if there's mm-hmm. not some external help. Mm-hmm. that comes in mm-hmm. and provides you that foundation mm-hmm. so that you can fix your stuff. Everyone mm-hmm. has stuff. Right. Everything, everyone has stuff that has is played a direct or an indirect role in why they come mm-hmm. to prison. And so I think it's important for us to think about what is the role mm-hmm. of our pro- healthcare providers? What, are, what do they need to provide so that women break their cycle of incarceration, break their cycle of behavioral issues mm-hmm. and get out of prison and stay out of prison? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit. What, what do you think is uh, uh, some solutions that we could that we could share with our audience that could help women incarcerated better deal with their stuff so that they come out of prison ready to live their lives without the criminality, without the unresolved mental health issues, without the trauma disorders running their lives? Well, you know, I think it's a difficult question to even attempt to answer when we're considering a system that is actually based on perpetuating that very cycle. You know, so what do we do in a system that is set up to do exactly what it's done? And that's keep people ensnared in a carceral state and in the carceral system. The reality is if we get well, you're out of business. And this is the, one of the biggest business going in the country today. So, you know, I think the first thing we need to look at is this role in privatization and what that's really looking Absolutely. like on not only the individual level, but the national level as well. I mean, what happens when we truly have made prison a business? We have turned the warehousing of human beings into a multi-billion dollar business, which means it's not about people. So, you know, I think- It's about profit. Right, it's about profit. So I think we need to look at this baseline of what is this system really set up to do? Who are we criminalizing them? What are people being criminalized for? 
who are we determining as a criminal and then who's coming to prison and then under what system are people going through that whole judicial process? What are these laws really doing and really allowing the system to do to people? Well, contractually, Mm -hmm. the point is to provide every incarcerated person with basic mental and physical health care. That's the contract. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, how is that facilitated? Mm-hmm. We've spent so much time on mental, we haven't even really talked about physical, especially looking at these articles, you know, that Virginia Black has put out. This is part of why we have this discussion on the table. Well, one of the things that was illuminated in the expose is that there's been a huge spike in um medical complaints, Mm -hmm. not just mental, but also physical complaints, predominantly coming out of privatization, surgeries that needed to be treated, surgeries that needed to be had, um, physical treatment that has been denied, uh, medication that has been denied or Mm -hmm. prescribed by the hospital, but not uh, administered at the facility. And so the contractors have come out under a lot of scrutiny for that. And as, as her expose shows, and if anybody's interested in checking that out, the entire article is called Profits Over Prisoners. Inanna's Health Care for Inmates Draws Anger, Anguish. And it's available at www.southbendtribune.com news slash public safety slash profits over prisoners. Thanks. Yeah, sure. What they showed is that the state has settled nearly three dozen cases of medical neglect for 1.2 million. There was at least 178 medical related civil rights lawsuits Mm. in federal courts in Indiana against Corizon since 2011. Oh my God, that's a lot in a very short amount of time. Absolutely. Medical complaints have spiked from 153 in 2010 to 509 in 2015. So obviously there's some concerns about privatization and, and the treatment of the incarcerated women that are there. Well, so what do you think we can do, you know, more on an internal level to help ameliorate some of these problems with substandard health care for prisoners? Well, I personally advocate for a empowered, and I'm emphasizing empowered, empowered external oversight mechanism. Mm-hmm. All of the external oversight mechanisms in the state of Indiana are state agencies. So you have state agencies oversight, uh, providing oversight over state agencies. So the same people. For the same people, often located in the same center, in the same offices, et cetera, et cetera. I would advocate for a true external, non-government, non-partisan oversight mechanism that actually looks at these contracts and then looks at how they're being administered on the ground. Because it's one thing to pull up a website and say, this is what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. And it's another to walk the facilities, walk in there, ask the questions and find out what's happening. In terms of solutions, obviously, the departments of corrections across the country are not going to disappear. Mm-hmm. And the privatization model won't disappear. Mm-hmm. So what are we going to do in the meantime to make sure that men and women across the state, across the country are, are provided with equitable mental and physical care. Mm -hmm. My solution is an external, real empowered oversight mechanism that can go into these places and sanction Mm -hmm. and suspend 
and provide fines and suspensions on contracts that are not being administered appropriately. There needs to be a consequence so that people can receive the care that they need. Mm-hmm. That is my solution. Right. So, I don't know if it's going to, you know, I don't know if it'll ever happen, but I know that the watcher cannot be of the watched. Right. Right. So we need someone, we need an external oversight mechanism right. that can That doesn't have a vested interest and especially exactly. an economic interest. Who simply cares how people are treated. Right. One really concrete example of this is the person who is serving right now as the chief medical officer for the Indiana Department of Corrections. Uh, that is a person named Michael Mitchiff. So Dr. Mitchiff used to work for Corizon. He worked for Corizon for many years. And in the period before his work for the IDOC, he was accused of buying illegal drugs. And in fact, his medical license was suspended for procuring drugs for himself in other people's names. In 1999, however, his license was reinstated on the condition that he only work in the Indiana prison system. Uh, A tremendous irony for those of us who believe that uh, people deserve to retain their humanity when they are imprisoned. One of the main issues with having Dr. Mitchiff at the head of the INDOC is that he now oversees the contract for the company that he used to work for as an employee. Uh, Not to mention the fact that there are people in the system who are convicted of no less than the crime for which he merely had his medical license suspended for 90 days. This has been KiteLine. Please reach out if you have a news item we should cover, if you want to volunteer, or just to tell your story. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.